Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello, this is Graham Brown. This is Asia Matters, ATP 590. We're talking about the Asian century. What's coming next? How do we predict the future? What are the important trends to look for in Asia? Does the rise of Asia also mean the fall of the West? Which cities are the cities that we need to pay attention to? Does the success of startup ecosystems like Shenzhen, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai also mean the decline of startup ecosystems in the West? Is Silicon Valley's loss Asia's gain? To help understand this, we can go back. Let's go back in time. Because going back in time, we can also understand the future a little bit better. So there's a pattern here. And it's quite a consistent pattern. And I want to share that with you today because understanding that pattern will help us better predict the future. Because as I said in ATP 580, that everything has a precedent. If somebody says to you, it's different this time, they're bullshitting. So let's have a look at the pattern. Let's go back. Go back in time. Let's go back to 1915. And I want to take a time trip with you. A bit of an adventure, because we like to travel here on Asia Tech Podcast. I want to take a trip with you to 1915 and San Francisco. And what would it have been like? Because here's the interesting thing. San Francisco in 1915 was the year that San Francisco opened the World Fair. Those big exhibitions where cities, countries get an opportunity to show off their latest technologies so what would you have seen in the 1915 World Fair? Bear in mind that in 1915, only 10% of American households had electricity. And the first transnational phone call had been made just that year between Watson and Graham Bell. So that famous conversation took place in 1915. So put all of the technologies into context. This was very early days in the information age. So the 1915 World Fair in San Francisco, you could have seen a five-acre model of the Panama Canal. Now that's kind of important because the Panama, Panama Canal was a gargantuan engineering effort I mean, if you think about it, it connected, it connected the Pacific Ocean with the East, effectively, with Asia, with the Atlantic, and so on. And some, you know, a lot, so big was this canal that the, the project, which was effectively managed and run by American engineers, was sometimes called the 13th Labor of Hercules, so it opened in, 20, in, in 1915, and that effectively connected San Francisco and the West Coast to the rest of the world, which is a big deal. What else could you have done on the World Fair? You could have taken a 10-minute, $10 hydroplane, which would have flown you all over San Francisco Bay, and then back again. And that would have been run by a company just newly formed called Lockheed. You could have seen Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison would have been at the fair. He would have been showing off his world first, which was a storage battery. You could have seen a, a $10,000 typewriter, something called cotton candy, which was this new 
delight for kids. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. And uh, this would have been cool. A Ford assembly line. And this Ford assembly line produced automobiles every 10 minutes. It was an actual Ford production line in the fair. A real live production line. And it produced 4,000 cars during the time of the exhibition. But here's the, the, the most exciting exhibit, I think, is it was a telephone line installed by then AT&T, which were a rather new company back then, which connected San Francisco with New York. And people in New York could have picked up the phone, and bear in mind that people didn't have phones in their house, so it would have been at an exchange in New York, and they could have heard the sound of the Pacific Ocean. So people just must, must have been wowed by that. I mean, that was a completely new era. People didn't travel east to west. Very few people ever made that journey. And if they did, they often didn't come back. So the fact that you could actually connect these two worlds by a telephone line with instant access was just phenomenal at the time. Think about that connectivity. 1915. That kind of connectivity, most people didn't have electricity. They would have gas lights or candles or those kind of things. And then there's this new technology that just connected the world. So that was the World Fair. And here's the interesting thing. If you were going to the World Fair, and a lot of countries were present at the World Fair, and the World War was also on in Europe. I'll talk about that in a minute and why that's important. You know, th- this was the world in San Francisco in 1915. And as you would have come up to the, you know, crossing the bay to get to the fair and where the fair, the, the, you know, the acreage where the fair was set up, you would have seen these huge illuminated sign which said, California invites the world. So that was 1915. Let's put it into context. 1915, Great Britain was still the dominant power in the world. This was still the British century, which started a hundred years before. So if you go back to 1815, 1815, the British defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. And that was the, the seminal moment which started the Imperial British century, so 1815 to 1915. And then 1915, whilst... San Francisco was inviting the world and creating these innovative technologies and connecting the world through trains and telephone lines and canals. What was Britain doing at the end of its century? Britain was fighting a war. And not just Britain, obviously Britain, France, Germany, all the old powers were fighting in the trenches in Europe. And you know, that, that effectively bankrupt, bankrupted Britain because Britain had to go cap in hand back to the US and borrow money to finance the war. And, you know, rather than finance wars, America at the time decided that it was going to finance innovation. It was investing all this money into innovation and connectivity. You know, to build the Panama Canal, how many billions or trillions of dollars would that cost today? 
So the British century was 1815 to 1915, and the American century probably started right about that time in San Francisco. 1915, or at least 1918, at the end of the war, when the old world was bankrupt, was decimated, and America had to lend money, not just to Britain, but to all of the European powers, lent money to Germany as much as it did to Britain. So America was the new world superpower. And by 1920, America became the biggest economy in the world. Which is really interesting, because now let's think about the parallels. You know, whilst the old world was bogged down in the politics of division, the new world, America, was focusing, looking forward, and focusing on connectivity. As I said, canals, train, train, you know, train tracks, steam engines, automotives, automobiles for the, the average person. And telephones, or, or you know, air, aviation, all the aspects of connectivity. This was the soft power that America yielded in 1915 that made it the world leader. But, you know, if you went back to 1915, or at least 1918, and asked any British person who was the world leader, they would have said, well, it's Britain, because that's what they've been used to for the last hundred years. And, you know, it's interesting when San Francisco had Edison and it had Watson and it had all those innovators that converged on that point, innovators in, you know, technology, in art, in cinema, in every aspect of culture that converged in San Francisco for that time and creating all that connectivity, the old world was building walls. And an example of this is the Maginot Line, which I believe is geographically sort of north of the northeast part of France, which was like an interlinked network of walls, effectively, and bunkers. So the French built these network of bunkers with these sort of concrete pillboxes that joined up around the northeastern part of France to keep the Germans out. So, you know, their, their, their rationale was that to prevent a future wall, wall, they would, sorry, to prevent a future war, and that was likely to be with the Germans, they would build a wall, and that would be this fixed wall. And that wall cost them billions. And I believe, and I'm sure people can correct me if I'm wrong, that wall building the Maginot Line, bankrupted France. It cost so many billions to build that France was just crippled economically. It didn't have much money anyway, and it only had a few you know, billion lent to it by America. And what it did have, it spent on the Maginot Line, so it couldn't rebuild its economy. Which is interesting, because when the war did break out 20-odd years later with, with Germany... Uh, Hitler's forces just drove around the wall. The wall was just rendered useless. It was, you know, it was a complete waste of money. All those billions spent bankrupting the country building a wall were completely ineffective. So I guess, you know, what, what I'm coming around to is that's history. We've looked at the British century, which ended in 1915 
1918, however you want to call it, replaced by the American century, which started in 1915, 1918. So take a hundred years leap forward in history to 2018, today. Where are we now? Well, a lot of people talk about the Asian century, and that's what I want to talk about in this podcast with you today. What is the Asian century? And how do we put it into context historically? Because I think it already has a precedent here, even though the actors are different and the names are different. The pattern is almost the same. And we have a pattern here where we're coming to the end of an era. So there were three, there are three post-industrial eras. The first being the British century, the second being the American century, and the third now is the Asian century. And that era starts with the end of the second era, the American century. So, you know, what the parallels between the American century's ending and the final stages of the British century are very similar. So Britain was bogged down in foreign policy, bogged down in wars. And like many of the old powers of the time, Britain was concerned with, you know, retreating from the world like the French, building a wall. So what are we doing in 2018? Well, just as an example, you know, look at what's happening, what our leaders are doing. You know, you have this situation where Donald Trump is physically building a wall. So, I mean, if you, <laughs> you want more proof of the fact that, you know, this... this this is the end of an era. It starts with the building of a wall. And that's what's happening. You know, Donald Trump is touting the benefits of spending billions of taxpayer dollars on building a wall to keep the Mexicans and the rest of the world out effectively. But it's not just the, the border with Mexico where the wall's being built. There are other walls as well. You know, there are... You know, bills going through Congress at the moment, which are aimed at uh, expanding the the president's authority and blocking Chinese investments in the U.S. I mean, effectively, that fear of China scuppered the $117 billion Qualcomm Broadcom merger, right? There's the whole slew of protectionist measures being implemented by this current administration in America, including limiting immigration, Chinese immigration specifically, and also limiting those immigrants' access to key areas of strategic importance, like, for example, science and technology, the areas where Chinese excel. So if you want the best in the world to come and work on your startup or your innovative R&D department or your accelerator, whatever it is, chances are you're going to recruit people from China. However, it's becoming increasingly difficult thanks to the current administration. And the interesting thing is, you know, Chinese student numbers are down. You know, how important Chinese students were to American higher education for the last 10 years at least. But for the first time in 10 years, Chinese student numbers have fallen by 17% in a year. Because Chinese people, I mean, Chinese students are picking up on it. You know, they're picking up on the fact that they are unwelcome, combined with the fact that, well, actually, 
it might be better in Asia. So, you know, why go to America where you, you're not as welcome as you may be in Asia? Why don't you try out Asia? So you have that on the one side. So the leadership sets this tone of building physical and figurative walls, which the populace is picking up on. And if you have a look at the data, which I shared on LinkedIn today, if you have a look at the uh, Modern Language Association of America, I'm sorry if I got that wrong, but something like that, the Modern Language Association of America publishes data on student enrollments in languages in higher education in the US and Chinese, which you would have thought was the most important language that any student could learn today, obviously beyond English, but assuming they know English, if they want to get into the workplace, if they want to get into entrepreneurship, they've got to know Chinese at some point. They don't have to be doing business with China, but just to have that sort of sensitivity to China, understand a little bit, is important. So. Those numbers are falling. They fell 13% in 2016. We don't have data for 2017, 2018, but that was against the trend. The trend has been, like with the student enrollments from China, the trend has for a decade been up. So now you have this situation where this generation of entrepreneurs going into the market don't have the skills or are getting less skilled in the skills they actually need. And as I said, it's not necessarily the language. It's just the cultural sensitivity that they're going to need. So, you know, now there are, there are more people in, there are more American students in higher education studying Italian than there are Mandarin Chinese. You know, you, you tell me what that means in terms of importance. I mean, I love Italy. But I mean, even Italians will tell you that their, their language is not as important as Chinese. So that's the situation now. I think, you know, that starts with that tone that's set by the leadership. You know, when politicians bang on about China this, China that, it's no wonder that young people pick up on that and think, well, yeah, maybe China isn't such a good thing after all, which is it's, it's absolute shame. So... Let's have a look. That is the the really, you know, the manifestation of the symptoms of malaise at the end of a of an era. And go back to my point about the three eras. That's the end of the second era. It's now. You know, the Chinese, sorry, not the Chinese, the Asian century, the third era starts 2018, a hundred years after the American century started. And almost identically. America became the world's biggest power economically in 1920. China will become the world's biggest economy in 2020. How about that? You know, Britain became the world's biggest economy or the world's biggest military power when it defeated Napoleon in 1815. So there's like this 100 years almost to the, to the year, give or take a year either side, right? So where are we now? Heading into the Asian century, let's, let's have a look at what the Asian century looks like. I and mean, we talked about why we're woefully unprepared for it. But I want to talk more about what it actually looks like and what we can do about it. You know, us in the startup ecosystem, what does it mean to us? Well, start at the, the macro level. Asia is the biggest market in the world. That's a fact. It has the biggest 
Asian GDP is bigger than the US by a factor of, well, I mean, it's, there's a gap of about $7 trillion, and that gap is doubling over the next five years. China, the biggest economy, we've, that's a fact. I mean, that very unlikely that's not going to happen because it's so close now. And you have all these factors like the fastest growing economies, the fastest growing regions in the world are all in Asia, the mega cities, et cetera, et cetera. So you have all that sort of macro data, and then you sort of drill down one step and you have all the, the, the manifestations of that. So this wealth that is being generated in the Asian century in Asia is being transformed into these projects. So, you know, like the 1915 World Fair, that wealth is being invested in building bridges, building connectivity, you know, where the old world, so Donald Trump is building walls, the new world is building bridges. And, you know, if, if you, you know, not just real bridges, but figurative bridges as well. But there are real bridges, like, for example, the Zonghai Bridge between Hong Kong and Macau, which opens in, I think, July of 2018, which will be the longest bridge in the world, connecting Macau and Hong Kong and effectively, you know, connecting two of the richest cities in, in uh, China or, you know, greater China, if you like to call it. And, you know, that's part of that bigger, greater Bay project, which I talk about in other podcasts on Asia Matters, Asia Tech Podcasts. So, you know, there's the literal bridge, the, the, the actual bridge, and then there's the figurative bridges, you know, like, for example, all the, the projects being built to create connectivity in Asia and connecting Asia with the world. You have, um, I mean, I'll just name some of these, for example, that Chinese companies run 77 sea terminals in, you know, about 20 countries. And then the, the, high, the high speed train corridor, you have the maglev that runs into uh, Hong Kong and up to Shanghai. And I'm told that that from Hong Kong central to Shenzhen, that takes 15 minutes, which is insane. And that high-speed rail corridor is, is going into Southeast Asia and across to Europe and Russia. You have all the highways that they're building, power plants, bridges, new cities, economic zones all over, not just in China, but all over, places like Sri Lanka, Myanmar, etc. Pipelines, gas pipelines, freight train lines. I mean, this one belt, one road strategy that President, well, Premier, sorry, Xi is talking about is a 5,000 trillion, sorry, oh, step back a little bit, Graham, a 5,000 billion dollar infrastructure spend. That's $5 trillion of infrastructure will be spent on one belt, one road. And, you know, there's a lot of different predictions about one belt, one road, but this is the big project of Xi's dynasty, of his legacy will be connecting China with the world through sea, through land. In the same way, we go back to the 1915 World Fair, you know, aviation, rail, ground transportation, cars, automobiles, telephony, you name it, electricity, it's all there. In a way, it has a lot of parallels. You know, America became the 
proponent of all these technologies and it had the wealth and the wherewithal and the, the bravery to go and implement these projects. And it did successfully, you know, it became a world leader in almost all of them. And now China is vying to do the same. You know, you think about it, that China, you know, at, at that level, in terms of the, the manifestation of that macro wealth in these projects, it, it's just one part of the story. You have the other part of the story, which is innovation. So you can imagine going back to the, the, the World Fair, you've got people like Edison there. You know, you have one of the, the, the greatest inventors of the generation, if not the century, if not, I don't know. I mean, you know, he's up there with the best of all, right? So you have Thomas Edison with the batteries and light bulbs and all, all the different things that he's invented. And you have that sort of hub of innovation that became San Francisco, you know, the valley. You have all of that going on. That's the beginning. A lot of that to do with the fact that it invited all these ideas from around the world into San Francisco. It had the capital. It had all that sort of Jewish capital that came into San Francisco and, you know, created that rebirth after the 1906 earthquake. You had, you know, the Chinese, the... the the Japanese, you had all those different communities coming to San Francisco and making it what it was and making it special. And that innovation that happened around it, that was the magic that created San Francisco. And that's why it became a world leader in technology within two generations. And you look at somewhere like China now, as an example, Asia, and a similar things happening. You have all these, this talent now going to Asia because Asia is inviting talent in and it's not building walls. It, it's trying to create the foundations for innovation. And you just look at how that happens at two different levels. The first level is the grassroots level, which is, you know, you go to a place like Shenzhen and you see the hustle that happens on the grassroots level of life in the city. And you understand that, you know, this is a place on the move. This is a place where technology is coming out of ideas. You look at how Chinese people use their payment systems, uh, you know, all over Asia, you have data which points to the fact that in many ways, Asia is more advanced in some of the, some of the uh, you know, most mundane technologies. I mean, mundane since every day, like, for example, mobile, you know, Thailand, for example, world leader in mobile usage. Um, you know, it's just in terms of average use per day, Philippines, highest social media usage in the world. I can't remember the exact data. We talk about it in the Digital Lives Asia podcast with Simon Kemp. But you have all this sort of, you know, these input factors which are pointing to the, this, this, this sort of innovation soup, if you like, which makes Asia a great place to innovate. And that's the one level, the grassroots level. And the other level you have at the sort of the top level where Asia really sort of gets it right, which is this sort of top, down planned innovation ecosystem where an Asian government, and it's not just China, this could be Singapore, it could be Hong Kong or somewhere in Southeast Asia, Japan, for example, they could say, right, we're going to focus on this area of technology and they commit a lot of resources to it. And in a way that creates the stability that entrepreneurs need to invest in very long game technologies. Artificial intelligence is an example. And I believe now, I don't have the data to hand, but there are more AI patent filings in 
the greater Bay, so the Shenzhen area, than there are in San Francisco Bay. So there's more AI innovation going on in China than there is anywhere else in the world. And we probably don't know most of it. So at the top level, you have these government policies to invest in technologies such as AI or, you know, even back in the early stages, invest in startups and create these startup ecosystems. But you also have, I mean, just, just compare this. You have, on the one hand, China is the biggest investor in renewable energies. Obviously, that's a technical-based, technological-based solution, quite high-tech. So biggest investor in the world in renewable energies. And by contrast, what is Donald Trump talking about? Donald Trump is talking about making coal great again. Let me repeat that, because whenever I hear that, I had to scratch my head and think, did I just hear that? Making coal great again. And here's the thing, coal, clean coal, coal, dirty coal, it's all the same black carbon-based fuel that we dig out of the ground. It, there ain't such a thing as clean coal. All coal is carbon. It produces, uh, it pollutes. It is a very inefficient fuel source. It's the fuel of another era, for sure. We know that, you know, coal-fired machinery is not, does not have a place in the modern era. Coal-fired heating, you know, come on. How can you how can you have any kind of confidence in a leader who is trying to make us get back into coal? You know, it's just unbelievable. Coal is a, you know it's 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 a prehistoric fuel source. It belongs in the industrial era, not in the twenty first century. So there you go. So that's the innovation side of things. So. It doesn't bode well for those in the West who follow the the platitudes of people like Donald Trump or any of the other leaders who are building walls in the same way. You know, if you're back in 1915 in the old world, you would have been you would have been touting the benefit of building a wall, the Maginot Line, even though it would have cost you billions. And it's not just necessarily the the money is the focus, isn't it? You commit all that energy. You, you, in, what could you have done with that time? Instead of building a wall, you could have built a bridge somewhere. You could have built a railway line. Whatever. You know, this is what benefits humanity at the end of the day, not walls. So for those people with their heads in the sand, the Asian century is a threat because it will wipe them out. It will make them irrelevant in the same way the British Empire became irrelevant. If you think about it, 1918, Britain was bankrupt, went to America for money. America lent it money. And then Britain went back to America and said, I can't pay you back. But it had to. So it wasn't in control of its own finances. America was in control. What then happened was, you know, the right, I mean, obviously there was an uplift post-war Everybody benefited. Then there was the depression, but then there was the war. But, you know, when things settled down in the 40s onwards, so that sort of 60-year run into the 21st century, America just flew ahead, left them all behind. And Britain just became, 
Well, it just became a shadow of itself. I mean, the most obvious uh, manifestation of that was the Suez crisis where the Egyptian president, Nasser, decided to nationalize the Suez Canal and take control of it. And the British said, well, you're not doing that. They sent in their troops. And America basically said to Britain, look, you know, if you don't get out of Egypt, then uh, we're going to sell all your, we'll sell all our treasury stocks or treasury holdings in pound sterling and we'll crash your currency. So Britain had to back down because America was the boss. So we're, we're at that stage because that sort of, those sort of politics don't make sense in an era where you don't have the, the financial or political power to wield them. I think what's happening now is that, you know, there are sort of two groups of people. There's one group of people who still believe in the American century, still believe in American exceptionalism, still believe in America first, make America great again. You know, it's no different from somebody sounding like me a hundred years before saying, you know, we've got to make Britain great again. We've got to, you know, the the British, we've got to restore the, the British empire. Those were the good old days. And we look back on that and say, think, well, that was ridiculous. You know, that we've, we've moved on. Times have changed. We've evolved. We can't go back to those days. We can't live in the past. So for those groups of people, they will be left behind by the Asian century. But there is a group of people who aren't part of that world. And that's what I want to talk about, because I believe you listening to this are part of that group as well, like me, a part of a group who... Look at the Asian century as an opportunity. You know, you might live in Asia, you might live in the West. Either way, you see, A, that this is happening and it's happening now, and B, it's really bloody important, and C, it's a good thing. Take, for example, Intel. And the reason I I talk about Intel, because Kapil Kane, the director of innovation for Intel China, was on Asia Tech podcast recently, and you can go and listen to his interview. This is really insightful and fascinating. He runs the Ideas to Reality Accelerator for Intel. Now, Intel are based in Santa Clara, right on the, 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 you know, the borders of Silicon Valley in California, right? And it made sense, you know, just on the basis of where the headquarters were to have the innovation there. But no, the Innovation Accelerator for Intel is in Beijing. And that's where Kapokani runs. Sorry, it's based in Shanghai. My mistake. So that's where he's based. I have to look at my notes. I'm pretty sure it was Shanghai. I know he's based in Shanghai. So there you go. Um, So it's based in Shanghai because A, it's an extremely innovative ecosystem and you've got all of those hustling entrepreneurs out there, part of that ecosystem. And you have all that kind of input innovation just talked about, like artificial intelligence, technologies, and so on. And it moves fast. And you have millions and millions of ideas. Lots of people coming into Shanghai from outside in the same way they were coming into San Francisco 100 years ago. So it made sense that you know, you, you don't, if you're Intel, you don't have to have your innovation headquarters in Santa Clara, you can have it in Shanghai and actually it probably would be better. And as Steve Blank says, if you've ever read any of the 
the startup books out there, lean startup type books, obviously there's Eric Ries, but you know, Steve Blank, who wrote, was it the four steps to epiphany and the startup owner's handbook or whatever it's called. I think that's Blank and Dorf. So Steve Blank said that, uh, innovation can come from anywhere on earth. So it's so true. It can come from anywhere. Innovation does come from anywhere. And that innovation is coming from Asia in many cases. So that second group of people, and you could put Intel in that, you could put people like Capulcane in that, you could put us in that, realize that Asia makes sense. And it makes sense that that isn't just about one region replacing another. It's about two regions coming together. It's about East and West. The Asian century is about Shanghai and Santa Clara. It's about China and Silicon Valley. It's about Singapore and London, Tel Aviv. Because that's how it has to be. And we're only going to capitalize on that if we stop building walls and start building bridges, start investing our money like they did back in San Francisco in 1915 in the technologies that connect people and stop getting bogged down by the, you know, the hawking of other countries and foreign interests. Because it doesn't make sense that, you know, China is exerting influence in the world through soft power and it's working. It's spending billions, trillions in all the countries that connect it around the world. And that's how China will rise to power, not through force necessarily. Okay, that may change in the future, but in the same way, back in the the beginning of the American century, America was all about soft power. America didn't want to get involved in the First World War. You know, America wasn't even a member of the League of Nations, I think, until the 30s. And it wasn't a member of the World Court, at least for another 20 or 30 years. It didn't want a part of it. So in the same way, that that's how we have to be. We have to sort of exercise ourselves in a way from these national identities and belong to a group of people who see cross-boundaries. So, you know, you go back to those students studying Chinese well, they're the ones who get it, even though they're in a, in a minority now. And that's, uh, it's just unbelievable that less students study Chinese than Italian. We need to be out there telling people about the benefits of not just learning a language, but getting out and experiencing a culture. Because if we don't, if we don't experience the culture, we'll just see all these people as strangers, as foreigners. And we'll lose because here's the thing. It's ours to lose. And what I mean by this is this: there's two key facts here that I want to share with you. The first one is this. If you're in the tech sector in the US, 50%, over 50% of your revenues come from outside the US. I mean, take an example like Facebook, how much of their revenue comes from outside of the US? More than 50%, I guess. So you need the rest of the world to make an American business relevant, right? Because if you don't, then, well, there are plenty of other Asian businesses willing to take your place. I mean, look at example, 
of Amazon versus Alibaba. Amazon is getting it right. Amazon is the one con- one's you know Amazon is not representative representative that's the word of the American leadership. Amazon is going out there and building bridges. It's going out there and but it's getting its ass kicked by Alibaba all over Asia. Because not only is Alibaba starting from a, a position of strength because it's right on the doorstep of all these countries in Southeast Asia. But it already has built relationships. And, you know, the problem of being in Silicon Valley is that most of the relationships you'll ever have are in Silicon Valley. And anything, you know, what's the nearest country? I mean, we've, we've talked about this before in the previous episode. Like if you take a five-hour flight from San Francisco, you can reach 550 million people. If you took a five-hour flight from Singapore, you could reach three and a half billion people. This is half the world's population within a five-hour flight. I don't know if you could do that in a day, but you're really pushing it. You could. A day, two days, I don't know. You could do a day trip, maybe. Half the world's population. And it's ours to lose because Asians have a massive advantage. Asia has a massive advantage, I should say. Because I think the advantage, if anything, is psychological. We talked about the cost factors and the, you know, the economies of scale and so on, the five-hour flight thing. But I think it's psychological and it's this, is that, you know, if you are a startup in Asia, you know that you need to get out and go global to survive. You know, if you're a bike-sharing scheme in China, well, you're competing with like, God knows how many bike-sharing schemes there are in Shanghai. They're all over the place now. They have to get out. They have to go global to survive because the competition is so fierce. And if you're in a, a, a city like Singapore, well, you have to go global because Singapore's only got 5 million people. But, you know, if you're based in Santa Clara or San Jose then yeah, maybe you, you can get away with thinking that everything's right on your doorstep, especially if you're a VC. You know, that attitude is quite typical of that region where, you know, if you're a VC or startup accelerator, the world comes to you. They expect you to fly to Mountain View or fly to Sand Hill Road or whatever it is and base around there. That's how it works there. So, Psychologically, they operate a bit differently. And I think that's the massive advantage that Asia has because the Asian mindset is the right mindset to, to survive and thrive in the Asian century. And compounding that is this idea that I suppose, you know, I, I was guilty of it and it's only until you start looking at the data and learning about it is this belief that, you know, Asia exists really to service the West. And this all obviously comes from, you know, you go back to the 80s where Asia was just making garments, really, for us in the West. You know, the sweatshops, the Nike trainers, the T-shirts, it all came from China and Thailand and Taiwan, Hong Kong. That's what Asia was there for. It was there for the, for the Western middle classes and our benefit, right? But that's changing. That idea that Asia needs the West is an outdated belief because 
what I want to end with today, just share with you, is this idea that Asia needing Asia is the biggest growth story of the next decade. And that's the first decade of the Asian century. It's what I call A to A, Asia to Asia trade. And it has some data to back this up. So by 2020, just around the corner, intra-Asian trade, so trade between Asia and Asia, will be worth twice as much as Asia's trade with the rest of the world. And just as an example, you can see that in how important US and China have been to certain parts of Asia. So in Southeast Asia, in 2004, the US was the biggest trading partner with Southeast Asia. In 2014, it was replaced by China. So you have now this situation where Asia is trading with Asia more than it's trading with the rest of the world. So that whole sort of idea about, well, you know, it's just a whole bunch of cheap factories and knockoffs. I mean, that's going away. It still has that. But increasingly, Asians are making stuff for Asians. And whether we're part of that story or not is really ours to lose. Because if we're not part of that A to A growth story, then, well, Asia could probably get on all right without us. But could we get on all right without Asia? That remains to be seen, and probably not. In the same way, if you go back 100 years, Europe, yep, probably thought that it could get away with just trading with Europe for its entirety, but that wasn't the case. You know, the world was changing. So you have this situation, and what's really driving it is the middle classes in Asia. And there's a phenomenal growth in middle class in Asia. So just off the top of my head, the figures are something like in 2010, 600 million middle class in Asia. And by 2030, that would be three and a half billion middle class people in, in Asia. Middle class really defined by people who you know, have disposable income, spend on these kind of services, spend on stuff like insurance, health, travel, housing, these kind of things. And that, that obviously, middle classes are key to any change, both political and technological and societal. <clears throat> so, you know, when you have these, this situation where you have an enriched Asian market trading with itself, and a core to that change is, is this growing middle class, it's quite conceivable that at some point in the future, you're going to have Asian companies who purely exist to sell to other Asian countries and wouldn't even consider going to America because it's too expensive, too difficult to get to. Uh, you know, They don't need to go there for the capital. They don't need to go to the Valley to get VC funding anymore because it's there. They don't need to go to the Valley to get talent because the talent is there. And they don't need to go to the Valley to get consumers because the consumers are there and they're there in multiples of what you would have got if you were based in San Francisco. You know, if you were based in San Francisco and had access to 550 million people, you could have said that of those 550 million people, 400 million were middle class. And therefore, you know, it was a different factor to those billions in Asia. But now it ain't. Now 
those three and a half billion middle class people in Asia are right on your doorstep. So why do you need Silicon Valley? Silicon Valley will need Asia more than Asia will need Silicon Valley. And that's the psychological advantage that Asia has because Silicon Valley has to change the way that it thinks about Asia. And of course it's happening. I mean, I talked about people like Intel as an example and they're getting it right. But there are many other ways that you can go about this. And I'll talk a little bit about these just summarizing. I think before we get there, the best way to to prepare yourself for the Asian century is to surround yourself with people who get it. Don't go out trying to sell the Asian century and the idea of Asia to people who don't get it. Because it would have been the same talking about the, the wonder of the, the, the World Fair in 1915 to people back in London. They wouldn't get it. They would have excuses to why, oh, well, that's fine, but yeah, the Americans, they don't do this, they don't do that. We're different here. It would have been the same. You've been wasting your time. Find the people who get it and save your energy for those people. That's the first point. Don't, don't try and sell to the unsold. It's, you know, there's only one life to live and time is pretty short. Don't waste your energies on these people. You know, if people can't accept that unipolarity is over, then they ain't worth your time. So, you know, I mean, just anybody that you just want to, educate on the subject, point them to history. You know, China was the world's biggest economy, the 16th to 19th century. And the reason China imploded was it cut itself off from the world, poor foreign relations. And rather than deal with them, it decided to cut itself off from the world and just suffered as the result of imperialisms for all over. And it forced it to retreat into obscurity. So it went from leading the world to nothing. And it's only just coming back now. So what, what I'm saying is patterns repeat themselves, point people to that. You know, we, there was an era when America wasn't the leader of the world. There was an era when Britain wasn't the leader of the world. And there's an era when Silicon Valley won't be the leader of the world in terms of innovation and startups. And it's coming. So the second part is... The final part, which is stop talking, start showing up. Now, there's a lot of people talking about Asia and the Asian century and the importance of Asia. It's easy to talk about this. There's people writing books about it. There's people blogging about this. There's people who have podcasts, have video, have shows, who do events about this. Look, it's easy to talk. Stop talking, start showing up. If you believe in Asia, show up because that's the commitment you needed to demonstrate that you understand and you think that this is worth your time. And that means get on a plane and go to Asia. You can't write or talk about Asia from a different continent. You can understand it. But if it really is important, then show up. You don't have to live here, but just show up. And I think that's the important part. That's the hard part. It's easy to talk about the importance of Asia 
when you're based in Silicon Valley. But look, for example, at people like Carl Ellicott, who does the Cross-Border Carl show. He shows up. He shows up. And it's not easy showing up, flying from San Francisco to Hong Kong. It's a long flight. But he gets on the plane and he shows up. Or people like Bay McLaughlin, who runs the Brink Accelerator, worked for Apple, got on the flight, flew to Hong Kong, showed up, looked around, looked around Asia. What do I want to get out of Asia? What cities are the cities that work for me? Where's the best place to base myself? He showed up. Or you've got, for example, like, uh, what else is there? Other ways of showing up. You, you can read the books, at least start by reading the books. Read Ashley Galina, Galina's Unlocking the World's Largest E-Market or read uh, Shenzhen Superstars by Johan Nillander. And, and just read them, get on a plane and show up. Or, you know, even if you, you know, that's not the way you want to do it. Go to, you know, get on a program like Reboot Life run by uh, run by Nitin Sahani, where you join a, a cohort of entrepreneurs and remote workers and digital talent, and you travel around the world together. You spend a month in every location in the world, and you learn about these locations. And the first two locations they're going to in May are Bali and Chiang Mai. So Bali in Indonesia and Chiang Mai in Thailand. Get on a program like that. I mean, if you don't want to show up on your own, show up with other people. Get your backpack on. Come to Asia and learn. Because as I said, it's not just about showing up. It's about understanding what's going on, but learning what's actually happening here. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have really truly appreciated the World Fair in San Francisco in 1915 unless you showed up. You know, that's the importance of showing up and a lot of people are talking as I said but those who are showing up are the ones who actually are making a difference and the ones worth listening to so just buy a ticket get on a plane you know get on one of go on one of Kyle's innovation tours or contact people like Brink or read those books subscribe to Asia Tech Podcast because live vicariously if you can't show up physically at least mentally show up listen to Asia Matters get on Reboot Life Pack your backpack, buy a plane ticket, a one-way ticket, just go. I mean, you know, if you want to understand Asia, the best way you can do it is just go. Go to Hong Kong, go to Shenzhen, go to Singapore. Spend time there. You will find hundreds of people to connect with. And, you know, in the same way that if you had flown to San Francisco, sorry, you wouldn't have flown to San Francisco in 1915, you would have taken a, a ship and then a train to San Francisco in 1915, the mobility of the people there, the fact that people came from all over the world of different stripes, different walks of life, you can network with people so easily. Don't worry about, oh, what do I do when we show up? When you show up, there will be hundreds of people there for you. You can plug into all kinds of different events and there's all kinds of different communities there to plug into. So just do it. That's how you need to prepare for the Asian century. I think that's the group of people, you know, those people that I've talked about today who firstly are denial, are in denial about the Asian century, the ones with the heads in the sand, 
that's the first group that will become irrelevant in the same way those who thought that the British Empire would go on forever became irrelevant. The second group of people who understand the Asian century but aren't committing. They're talking about it, they think it's important, but they're not showing up. And the third group of people, hopefully you, hopefully you made a commitment, are showing up. My name's Graham Brown. This is Asia Tech Podcast, Asia Matters. Been talking about the Asian century and showing up. For God's damn sake, show up, people. I want to know as well. I mean, if you're out there and you may have showed up, fascinated to hear your story, you can tweet me at Asia Tech Pod. But if you're helping people show up, I would love to hear from you because you've got to share that story with us here at Asia Tech Podcast because the more people we can help show up in Asia, you know, the more people are going to be prepared for the Asian century. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.